0: Welcome to the Pac-Man Podcast. Here you will find Dr. Cindy Elliser and Kat McKeever, researchers at Pacific Mammal Research, talking all about marine mammals. We will have a variety of ways to share information with you through discussing research articles and news stories, interviews with other researchers, and more. Join us to learn more about marine mammals and have some fun. Welcome to the pac Podcast. I'm Cindy. And I'm Kat. And this week we're doing another uh, journal review paper, and this one's interesting. We picked it because well, it's, it just came out for one, um, <laughs> super fresh, exactly. Um, but it was also about climate change, and we thought this was you know a pertinent, a pertinent topic to cover, um, mm. as we you know it's a, it's a hot topic uh, on both sides of of the of the of the climate change issue. Um, but this one's uh, specifically about how marine vertebrates, so marine larger, well, actually not larger, any marine animal with a backbone. Yep. Just in case
1: you didn't know what vertebrate means, there you go. Right. First little gonna... nugget of knowledge,
0: right there. <laughs> <laughs> so, straight and out the gate, we're talking about big whales and stuff. Like, oh no, no, we're actually talking about fish and other things. Anything that has mm-hmm. a backbone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they can be quite small. Um, so the this one is in um Cell Press, which is an open access journal. So you can go, we'll have the link to it in our uh, notes. Um, but it's a review and get ready for it, integral functions of marine vertebrates in the ocean carbon cycle and climate change mitigation. <laughs> it's a big title. Let's let that sink
1: in for a minute. Just, <laughs>
0: just, okay, here we go. Um, but basically what we're talk what they're talking about is is climate change and you new know, carbon and carbon um, sequestering it, you know, trapping it where it's getting released, you know, that whole carbon cycle is where climate change is coming from because more carbon dioxide is in the air and where that carbon goes um, affects how hot the planet's getting, right? Because carbon dioxide mm-hmm. is one of those greenhouse gases that blankets the earth and keeps us toasty but it may be getting a little bit too hot like you're wearing your you have your winter blanket on in the middle of summer <laughs> which is right. not good to that's say a though. good analogy yeah that's what i always think of in my head so yeah. what we're so and then and that's carbon so the idea for climate change and, and climate change mitigation right to try to stop climate change or slow it down is to reduce the amount of carbon that gets released into the atmosphere and so what this article is about is looking at these marine vertebrates and how they are integral in the cycle of carbon and um how they affect climate change and how they affect what we do about stopping or or well I can't play, probably stop it, but
1: at least slow like, like it you down. said slowing down. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> slowing it down. So um so it's it's kind of a big overview and this isn't this is a little bit different because it's a review so there isn't a, like a you know methods and data this is they just looked at the available information in the literature and is summing it all up into this okay. into this paper um so we're going to talk about this a little bit differently than we've done other papers but what i wanted to read um in the first part is the first paragraph i actually really liked um and this encompasses the variety that we're going to talk about in a marine vertebrate right so Marine vertebrates range in size from millimeters to the 30 meter long blue whale, have lifespans from weeks to centuries, and occupy all but the lowest trophic levels. Some undertake vast migrations across oceans, while others have a home range of just meters. Some feed in shallow waters, but live at depth. Others feed at depth, but return to shallow waters. Some marine vertebrates release sperm and eggs to the water column. Others reproduce fertilized eggs, which may be abandoned, and mammals can nurse their live-born young for several years. These diverse ecologies have multiple interactions with the carbon cycle, many unexplored. Yeah, such a good summary. Yeah, I mean, mean, so we're talking about this huge variety of animals that we know relatively nothing about in terms of carbon, where the carbon's going and how they're interacting. And as we'll talk about in the paper, there is a lot of interaction between, you know, okay, where does the carbon go physically in their bodies versus Mm -hmm. how they shift where carbon goes based on their behavior. So what I, I did like about this is that you know, we're not just talking about these individual animals. We're talking about behavior, observations, things like that, that I, I think doesn't get a lot of play in, in serious scientific things sometimes,
1: where yeah. it's like, oh, it,
0: we're just observing behavior.
1: It's true. And I mean, I think especially in this context, and you know, hopefully we'll explain why it's so important shortly, but it's so fascinating because it really highlights why that's so important to actually be mm-hmm. looking at you know, looking at the overall ecology, including behavior of these animals is crucial.
0: Right. And for this and for many other aspects, like this really is a good good way to show that, you know, sitting out there and observing behavior is actually really important to be able to mm-hmm. understand a lot of different things about these guys. Yeah. So the first part, first section is um, talking about, you know, where carbon goes. So, you know, the carbon cycle is the movement of carbon through various forms and environments on all timescales. Um, you know, we're, and we're really, the main thing we're talking about here with climate change is where that carbon dioxide is going that we are releasing from burning fossil fuels and other things and ex- exhaling, right? Every time you exhale, yeah. you release <laughs> carbon dioxide. Um, and so that goes up into the atmosphere. And so how, what happens to that carbon um, through the cycle of, uh, could, because remember that, you know, matter is neither created nor destroyed. It simply changes shape. So the amount of carbon that's there is there, but it's where it is. Is it trapped in a bi- body, in, in the biomass of an animal? Is it trapped in the sediment and in, in where we then find those fossil fuels? Is it um, uh, getting fixed into a different form? Is it getting released back into the atmosphere? Those are the things that we're talking about and trying to figure out where the carbon is at any given time.
1: Okay. So, you, you like know, a, just, just minor details, really. It's
0: like a shell game. Where's the carbon? Where's the carbon? Where's the carbon? Where's oh, the carbon? Yeah. <laughs> Um so uh one thing that the ocean is known for at least in scientific worlds is that it is a carbon sink. It is uh and what that means is that the carbon comes out of the atmosphere and goes into the ocean just like water goes into a sink and can stay there for a fair amount of time. So these carbon sinks are really good in taking some of that carbon out of the atmosphere, you know, reducing that layer of that blanket into something a little bit thinner, hopefully. Um mm-hmm. and sequestering it in the ocean. Um, mm-hmm. And so um, they're really important uh, for climate change mitigation. right? So if we understand more or, or how we can influence how the ocean is a better carbon sink, <laughs> we could actually uh, help to uh, combat the effects of climate change uh, in different ways.
1: And I think it's quite interesting because a lot of people think about you know rainforests as being a major carbon sink source. And I don't really know how many people, who are out with the scientific community actually think about the ocean as being that kind of function. So this is also really cool kind of just kind of like bringing this to the forefront of our minds that this is a huge source um, of basically like carbon holding that we tend to kind of ignore.
0: Exactly. And, and, and the same thing, you know, phytoplankton give us more oxygen than the rainforest too. Yeah. (laughs) We forget about that. You know, the ocean is such a, Has a huge part of all the cycles. Um, I mean, it's the big blue planet, right? It's mostly ocean, and it has a really important job. Um, And so the carbon absorbed from the atmosphere that goes uh, into the ocean can be released, can be fixed, which is converting it to an organic form of carbon that um, animals and plants can use, can be stored and can be held up to 100 years. That's the sequestering. Um, Or... um, stored and then sequestering is held for more than 100 years so i I Mm -hmm. thought that was interesting there's stored (laughs) under 100 years, right and then yeah,
1: sequestered is actually a different
0: thing it's a bigger a bigger term Mm -hmm. yeah so that's what they're looking at here and looking at the behaviors of these different animals and their lifespans and things like that as to what's happening with this carbon whether it's getting help getting fixed whether it's sequestering whether it's storing that kind of thing um so um, the the I want to to clarify one of them, the the fixing one. So um, phytoplankton, again, very important little guys is little microscopic organisms, um, little plants that are in the surface of the water, are, are very important for converting to organic carbon. So the carbon in the atmosphere is inorganic carbon. it's not um, really usable by, organisms. And so you have to have ones that can fix that into another form. So fixing it into like a sugar molecule would be now that's an organic form of carbon. Mm. Um, so it's really that, that they're really important. Um, and the processes that transfer the carbon provide the nutrients that enable this carbon fixation. And so it's critical. It's a critical function of the carbon sink of o- the ocean being a carbon sink. Yeah. So yeah. Um, to clarify that. <laughs> You're like, Oh, carbon fixation. Yeah i know totally about that no (laughs) most people don't
1: (laughs) we got you we got you
0: right so um one of the biggest things we're going to go over here is they have this really cool um uh, infographic uh that kind of covers what they're talking about in the paper and you have four different categories of um where the carbons uh, how the carbon moves around yeah, so
1: it's different kinds of interaction with carbon, effectively. Exactly.
0: So the first one they 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 term functional. So this is like the the functions of your body, basically. So there's respiration, right? You breathe carbon dioxide out, so that is a movement of carbon into the gaseous form. Uh, or if you're a fish, it's released into dissol- as a dissolved carbon, a carbon dioxide. Um, you have teleost carbonates, which are telios are bony fish right yep mm-hmm. um that excrete carbonates so calcium carbonate and magnesium carbonate um so calcium carbonate are what most shells are made up of so it's very important to a lot of animals um then you have the pooping out right so you breathe out carbon dioxide Y'all you knew like, we were going to talk about poop sometime Right. everybody poops um so they poop it out Um, There's the living biomass, so you have, you are, we are carbon-based organisms, so everything that's living in the ocean has carbon in it, and that's being stored, basically, uh, in the bodies. Um, And then when you die, because everybody dies, Mm -hmm. then there's carbon in the carcasses that, again, will get, uh, you know, eaten by the things and uh, recycled back into the, into the environment. So those
1: are all termed functional interactions.
0: Right as part of, you know, just like function versus a behavioral interaction, which is um, basically the, the two easiest ones to think about are is horizontal and vertical transfer. So if you are in uh, say a, a, a sperm whale and you go down, dive deep down into, to go get your giant squid down at the bottom, and then you come back up to the surface, you are going to be transferring some of that carbon from the surface waters to the deep. So that would be vertical transfer. Mm-hmm. Then uh, horizontal is, say, a gray whale who goes on a really long migration is transferring nutrients from the um, you know, northern latitudes where they feed to the uh, tropical latitudes where they breed. Right. So, and mean, vice versa. And vice versa. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, I think they mostly talk about when they're, they're, they're bringing the, the rich stuff down to the, to, to the tropics.
1: That's yeah. true. Because, yeah, a good point. Tropics are typically more nutrient poor.
0: Yeah. Oligotrophic, if you will. That's what that there means. There you go. There you go. But
1: they're still pooping everywhere they go. So in that sense,
0: yeah. (laughs) Um, And then you have extrinsic transfer, um, which are the physical interactions with the environment that result in movement of external carbon. So movement of the water and eddies and all that other kind of stuff um, that moves around. Mm -hmm. And also uh, animals. So, for example, a gray whale goes down and feeds in the sediment they are releasing some of the carbon that's trapped in that sediment and putting it back up. So that's an extrinsic transfer. Mm -hmm. So again, really important to understand what the behavior of these animals are doing and how they are transferring carbon around the world in some cases um, and how that works. Then you have nutrient pumps, which are, uh, okay, so vertically, basically you poop again. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So that's if it, it transfers. So, Whales don't poop at depth, generally, so they'll go feed down below, and then they'll come up to the surface to poop. And so you're transferring those um, nutrients between depth. Right. Um, and then, as Kat just said, if you feed one place and then you poop somewhere else, <laughs> horizontally, <laughs> then you have horizontal transfer, where you're pooping hey, in one look place. look at that. So, yeah. Set and us up. <laughs> Um, extrinsic nutrient pump and this is physical interactions with the environment that um, move stuff around. Um, so I think that's just like fish and stuff moving around and going different places and with the water column. Um, and then nutrient recycling which is movement of nutrients in the metabolic waste of animals within a depth boundary surface. Um, so basically the it, you're not moving it in between like a depth and in the surface you're moving it in one spot. Right. And now we'll take a quick break. And the last one we talk about is trophic interactions. And so this is basically grazers that eat plant material and predators that eat other animals. Um, Predators eat the grazers, usually. (laughs) Right, (laughs) usually. (laughs) But some predators can eat other predators. That is very true. Um, but it, you know, herbivory controls plant communities and predation controls other animals and other predators, and that's a delicate balance. And we'll talk about that as we, as we go into it.
1: Yeah, there are some really neat examples that they had specifically in this review. Yeah, exactly.
0: Um, so what's interesting and why they wanted to look at this is that, you know, we know a lot about, um a lot of biology and ecology of marine vertebrates from you know small things and fish and up to marine mammals but not in relation to how this carbon cycle right so we know their behavior we know that they go up and down but they haven't calculated what that carbon amount is that they're storing or releasing or transferring right um so you know how much does uh is is taken up in the biomass? What if you remove a whole bunch of animals? What does that do with the biomass that that carbon could have been stored there? Um, how how much moves around in the poop? Okay, there's lots of poop in this review.
1: <laughs> I know, I was like, all of a sudden, I realized we're talking about this a lot. <laughs> <laughs> That's
0: true. And If you want to learn about more poop, go back to our other podcast where we talked about the whale, uh, um, uh, the the whale pump, the, the fact that they poop at surface and how that...
1: Oh, right. Yep. Yep
0: all that. So, um, we do have some other episodes about poop as well, if you're interested in that. It's very, it's fascinating. (laughs) It actually is. (laughs) Um, so let's see. So then, so that was that, then they had this other, um, interesting graphic, but, uh, about, you know, for example, in, in one organism, where is the carbon going within that? Right. So that, um, is, so they have nice little, this little salmon. They use salmon for whatever reason. Um, the functional carbon interactions of a fish. So this is on the functional carbon. So this just having to do with the individual. Um, and so you have carbon-based food that they eat. And then they have the dissolved inorganic carbon that they release when they exhale, right? Because they're breathing okay. through the water. Um, they have uh, carbon-based biomass inside themselves. Right. Then so like they you said, they are carbon-based animal right they're storing some of that uh, for however long they live and then they may release some of that in gametes or um like for example them that would be eggs and sperm they release um they poop out organic carbon (laughs) again (laughs) and it's a teleost fish a bony fish so they will actually excrete some of those inorganic carbonates that are very important as well
1: Mm -hmm. and then when it dies then it releases that carbon through its or it cycles that carbon back into the environment through its carcass um, and through the breakdown of that carcass through other typically animals and bacteria. Right.
0: And that's why nature is the biggest recycler, right? Because Mm it's, it, it you don't make new stuff. You just keep shifting that carbon around and around and around into something new. Yeah. So um, they separated these into the first one we'll talk about is the direct functional, um, Uh, So they have direct interactions and indirect interactions. So direct would be the animals actively involved in whatever interaction you're talking about. The indirect ones is is one you're removed one step from the animal. So a lot of those are um, some more. uh, What was I going to say about that? Um, The indirect ones. it's a, it, it's not directly related with the animal. There's some other step involved before um, a right. level of complex interaction. Yeah. So the first one is uh, the functional interactions. And what I thought this was really interesting um, is, you know, talking about what we just talked about with the salmon diagram. You know, they're taking in, they're releasing some, they're releasing it through eggs and sperm, they're doing all this stuff, and particularly the biomass of the individual. So, <clears throat> They approximated that, um, or not they, but they looked at a a paper that said about 11% of the wet weight of a fish is carbon. And so if you extrapolate that, and they did an example of um, the population of reproductive anchovy in the Bay of Biscay represents a carbon store of 1.33 times 10 to the negative fifth gigatons per year. And so they always do carbon in terms of gigatons, because there's a lot of it.
1: Right. Just makes it that much hard to imagine how much they're actually talking about
0: I know it's one of those things we get when you get past a billion dollars hard. like it's not even it's not even real like just, right just, yeah just,
1: now it's just numbers I don't
0: even right. know a lot of zeros mm-hmm.
1: um, but it's a lot of carbon uh, let's just put it that
0: way this is a huge amount of carbon <laughs> huge amount of carbon right um, and that herring in the nine fishing areas reported in a certain area stores 6.97, 10 to the negative fourth gigatons per year. Um, and so, uh, and they, they equated that to, um, baleen, uh, uh, similar to the amount of baleen whales that are holding that same biomass. So there's a lot of fish out there holding a lot of carbon. Um, but, um, so these populations just by living hold a ton of carbon, right? multiple so, gigatons in fact right of carbon so um, what i want you what we should think about is what what happens in, when you remove that much carbon right? right if you remove those many that many animals by by fishing and you know we're, we're removing metric tons of fish you know possibly every day i don't know a lot uh, so how does that affect that carbon cycle
1: right and just as we went through with that salmon example you know this is not just about
0: the biomass
1: biomass of the animal this is like you're removing their ability to cycle carbon through in other ways
0: as well exactly exactly yeah um and so then you know they give another example um about the importance of carcasses Mm -hmm. so um carcasses are an important source of energy transfer but carbon outcomes have not been widely explored um And sometimes with those, they can be, you know, sequestered for millions of years if it goes down and stays at depth. So you could be taking yep. a, you know, a whale fall of a carbon and just it's st- stuck down there. It's not being released back into the atmosphere at all.
1: Yeah, which is huge.
0: Right. Um, and those other ones, you know, these, the, the deaths of those of those animals also are a significant source of carbon transfer from the surface to the deep sea ecosystems, which are vitally important for the ecosystems down there those guys that we forget about that live in the dark dark depth of the ocean yeah and too um so what they what, what i thought was really interesting is that they looked at um they were saying that that you know if we're looking at it well the sequestered amount that is uh taken in by those sinking carcasses of eight the eight different bale- baleen whale species that they looked at may not be that much. However, another re- uh, paper estimated that whale falls could remove 1.6 times 10 to the negative fourth gigatons per year. If baleen whale stocks were restored to previous whaling densities. Right. So again, they could be a huge asset in removing carbon from the atmosphere just by living, right? These, an- just by living, these animals will do it. And by us removing it exacerbates the problem of us releasing carbon dioxide and it not being able to cycle through and get sequestered away.
1: Right. I mean, all these crazy things that you think about in regards to the whaling industry and, you know, most people now are kind of against the whaling industry, or at least feel that it's not necessarily an essential thing to do anymore, but it's stuff like this that you have no idea the ramifications of that, you know, that action that we took at that time, like, wow, that actually impacted climate change way Mm -hmm. back in the day before we even knew what climate change was
0: yeah and before we even started industrial revolution really i mean (laughs) yeah yeah
1: that's that's what i mean like it's it's kind of always thought of in like oh well it's all all post-industrial revolution that this has all happened it's like actually no we started it's kind of started the ball rolling a little bit earlier than that without realizing
0: right just by removing these organisms from from their environment exactly so uh not to be a downer but you know (laughs) Just, we you know, just to just to bring some awareness. <laughs> I know I'm just saying like, oh, this is, you know, this is pretty much like a human suck uh, episode, but you know, <laughs> uh, but but a hope of what we can do to stop it as we will get yeah. to that. Um, so another thing that was interesting is that the um, there's organic carbon in the digested wax esters or lipids uh, in whale feces. Um, and so uh, this is also important too because again they don't poop at depth, and then their poop kind of floats. So it's an important. They're uh, which we talked about in the other podcast. They're basically fertilizing the upper layer of the ocean, mm-hmm. which provides more phytoplankton, which will take in more carbon dioxide because they are ph- photosynthesizers. Uh, so they pull more carbon dioxide out, and then have food for the smaller fish, which then have food for the bigger fish, and so and which then have food for the whales.
1: <laughs> right. Exactly. Yep. So this is also an example of that nutrient pump cycling Mm. um, that we talked about earlier.
0: Exactly, and that also has nitrogen and iron in it, and so it's also an important fertilizer part of it. So uh, very important, important part. Um, The other thing that I'll just talk briefly on is that um, the ocean acidification is a big problem too. So the more carbon dioxide that gets pulled into the ocean um, through a series of chemical reactions that I won't get into, um, basically <laughs> cause it's complicated, it's not too bad, but it's more than we want to deal with right now. Um, but it gets pulled in and you get carbonic acid, and then that breaks down into bicarbonate and hydrogen ions. And when you have extra hydrogen ions is when you become more acidic. And so basically the extra carbon dioxide goes in there, creates these bicarbonate and hydrogen, that hydrogen causes the acidity of the ocean to, to become more acidic Um, and that can pose problems for, um, uh, the carbonate gets taken up instead of being able to be used for calcium carbonate that we mentioned before. So for the animals to be able to create their shells. So through that process, they can't create their shells and coral can't produce their homes. And that's kind of the base of the food web. Um, and so this, uh, uh, this calcium carbonate, if we were able to keep it in there, acts kind of as a buffer for that, right. allowing it to not become as acidic as quickly. So uh, another important thing, you know, of those teleos fishes that are pooping out that calcium carbonate. <laughs> yep. And again, uh-huh. if
1: we if we take them all out, that's a huge source of that removed. Right.
0: Exactly. And then you just get more acidification and then it exac- again, exacerbates the problem. So oh, yeah. another side effect of that, talking about another huge problem, ocean acidification which would be for another podcast. But I digress. So um, (laughs) the next one was behavioral interactions. Um, So again, um, these can be moved huge amounts. And so this is actually a a fun one because I want to bring in a recent article that just came out about a gray whale that showed Mm. up in the Atlantic and they're not there anymore, right? Atlantic gray whales have been extinct. Um, So we have the Pacific gray whale and they did the molecular genetics on it and found that he was from over there. Um, he went 20,000 kilometers. That is half the planet. It's crazy. It's insane. So granted, that's a weirdo, right? That's not normal. <laughs> <laughs> but that I mean, you can travel. That That is the longest of any mammal besides humans, besides any animal. Um, and he just transferred nutrients from wherever he started all the way over to the other side of the world. Yeah. So, you know, these, those movements become very important as we talked about before with, you know, where are you pooping here, there, in between, you're depositing these fertilizations and carbon movement of of carbon from one area to another, you know, um, that can then be used by those organisms that are there up to half a world away. Yeah literally literally very cool um and then you have um which was interesting the connection between the terrestrial and the marine and freshwater so you have um uh, carbon flow out of marine ecosystems from salmon sea turtle hatchlings and seal carry-on so think about an eagle going down and grabbing a possibly even a a pup if it's small enough Mm -hmm. um uh, sea turtle hatchlings, like those get eaten and taken away somewhere else. So they're, you're bringing that carbon from the marine area into either freshwater areas or terrestrial areas. So you're moving carbon outside of the marine environment even. Mm-hmm. So right. that behavior. And so you're like knowing, okay, is the eagle going? How far is the eagle going? How far is the eagle taking that, that seal? Right. Orc? And
1: then you get into you know all the different sources of carbon cycling in the terrestrial
0: ecosystem. Right. Yeah. So everything's connected everything mm-hmm. it's so complex um and then uh, so we d- basically just need to know more um oh and then you have like uh, we mentioned before the benthic uh, whales so gray whales that are feeding below the surface or uh, you know below the surface of the water in the sediment those are releasing carbon and we really don't we know that they do that but again we've not connected it to what carbon are they releasing how is that how does that help or hinder or work with the carbon cycle Right. Um, So there's lots of stuff. And there's other animals that do that as well. But we just like to talk about the marine mammals because, you know, they're cool. We're marine marine mammal people. Um, So then they move on to indirect ones. And these are, again, that trophic level of stuff. So grazers and and predators. Um, Again, that the, the, um, let's see i'll just read a little bit from the paper marine invertebrates generate both direct and indirect effects on primary producers and other consumers through grazing and predation as well as behaviors that engage with carbon fixing cycling and storage components of their habitats so again they're managing those populations of plants or animals um, and those um uh you're eating, you know, so you're eating that carbon that's in the plant, you're then modifying that community, that plant community, and that can then affect how much that plant community is taking carbon dioxide in, um, how healthy it is, you know, so it, it's a complex thing because they're eating, they're taking away some plants, so that's going to reduce their ability to t- taking carbon because mm-hmm. they're not there, <laughs> but does that grazing help to keep healthy populations? Right.
1: And they also gave an example of, for example, like fish eating phytoplankton. Well, if those fish reproduce very rapidly, then, or sorry, if the phytoplankton, phytoplankton reproduce rapidly, is there really that big of a net effect with the fish eating them or right. not to the carbon cycling? So again, like you said, it's just, there's so many complex interactions here that you have to consider, which makes sense as to why nobody's really investigated this because it's mm-hmm. such a huge topic.
0: Well, and then think about, like, if you mow your lawn, unfortunately, mowing your lawn causes your grass to grow faster because it's like, oh, I just got eaten. I got to grow again. Right. right, yeah. So that kind of grazing can can make it happen, you know, make the, those populations go up again. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, um, so, you know, if you think about, you know, removing a predator, so, for example, removing sharks would then cause overgrazing to happen because, say, manatees or dugongs, that the sharks may eat are now doing better. Yay, dugongs. But then they're eating too much of the, the vegetation. And so then that can crash the, the, that population and then have you know, multiplying effects within the ecosystem. Um, but then you have reduced carbon sequest- sequestering or, or storing. Um, you have stuff being the carbon being released from the sediment that the plants were originally holding in there. Um, Boo and so, <laughs> right? so, but again, it's one of those things where this is what those, those keystone species that we've talked about, um, before where, you know, they have a disproportionate effect on the rest of the, how the ecosystem works. So you may not see the connection between sharks and seagrass or seaweed or whatever, seagrass for them. Um, but it does, it's the same thing as the sea otters and the kelp, right? So sea otters eat sea urchins, sea urchins eat kelp. If you take out the sea otters, sea urchins explode, and then the kelp forests die because it's overgrazed. Right. Um, so, so
1: it's again, it's just all about that balance, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and again, people don't, I mean, everybody loves the top predators, but they don't think about them and how that top-down control that there really is. We talk about, you know, well, the base of the food web, and if you don't have the base, then everything falls apart. But same can be true from the top. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an important thing that's been coming out more often. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so those are some cool examples. Um, the last section on carbon moving is nutrient pumps. Uh, and so these, again, we talked about the whale poop pump, <laughs> the whale yes. pump. So go get a, a, go look up an infographic on the whale pump. It's, it's a fun one. Um, but that can be horizontal and vertical as we've already talked about. Um, so moving that back and forth. Um, they call the, uh, which I hadn't heard about, I hadn't heard of this one. Um, the what is it the great whale conveyor belt
1: I feel like I had heard that but not for a really long time so I think it might have been something that someone mentioned in at university and I just couldn't like I I don't know it was familiar but I I had to go look it up again
0: (laughs) yeah so you have the vertical pump that takes the poop from the from the the carbon from the depth and then poops it out at the surface and then you have this horizontal uh whale conveyor belt where you have these long migrations or these whales, you know, even our orcas up here that don't necessarily migrate, but they go hundreds of miles and they could go hundred miles in a day.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and then you have your, your gray whales and your humpback whales that are going, you know, thousands and hundreds of miles, if not thousands of miles uh, in their migrations. So, you know, you're taking those nutrients from the high latitudes that are nutrient rich and taking them to those low latitudes uh, areas and, you know, somewhat vice versa, like we talked about, but <laughs> mainly that way. <laughs> um there's a really cool example here of, of on a small scale of fish grunts that hang out at coral reefs and when you they looked at places where there were grunts and where there weren't grunts in the coral system mm-hmm. and when the grunts were there the corals grew one and a half times faster super cool yeah because the grunts are going out away from the coral going and feed and then coming back and pooping on them <laughs> Perfect little
1: fertilizer system,
0: right? They're just growing their own garden. Um, so, but that, I mean, that's a very strong correlation and that's fast. I mean, especially with how slow coral can grow, if we could make them grow faster, that would be amazing.
1: Yeah. And they give the example of some seabirds too, which I thought was really neat having oh, grown wow. up in an area where there's a ton of seabirds and you really don't want to get pooped on because it happens and it's gross. But, same idea, you know, just stimulating that primary production on their ecosystems that they're landing on, going to, which oftentimes are a little more remote, simply by
0: pooping. Right, so you that pelagic carbon, again, from where they feed, and then they're pooping it out on land. Mm-hmm. Um, really high nutrients. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really I mean, cool. some, some places go in, like, bat guano. Like, you'll go in and, and collect mm-hmm. bat guano because it's got so much nutrients in it. You know, poop. Poop gets a bad rap. I mean it's really important. Right.
1: Most of us still use it on our gardens though. So I think we, we understand we just don't like to think of it in its yeah. original
0: form, which yeah. is fair enough. It's fair enough, but to to realize how important it is in the the cycles of nutrients and carbon yeah. in particular, too. Mm-hmm. Um so then we had oh again the resuspension of sediment by gray whales. Um, they release nutrients from the sediment back into that can then be, you know, used by other organisms. So again, that nutrient transfer. Um, And the really important part I thought was here is that it's, so these are locally important, right? So for the grunts and the corals, that's locally important for the, where the birds are pooping in that one area in terrestrial, that's kind of locally. But when you combine all those together, it scales up to a global uh, impact.
1: Yeah it's kind of like the whole concept of, you know, everyone making an individual change overall makes a huge change.
0: Exactly. You know, it's
1: that same concept.
0: Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so the last thing they talked about in the paper was uh, human uh, interactions, right? So we, and we kind of touched on this a little bit already. So we'll kind of Uh, Just kind of go over a few things briefly here as we're ending the near of our time. Um, So, you know, talking about fisheries, you know, if we're removing that much biomass and then all the things that are connected to it, what is that doing, right? We're removing that much carbon in the first place. And the one thing I wanted to point it out here um, is so we remove that, and that's bad enough, right? We're removing that much carbon that's being stored. But what carbon did we burn to get them? Uh, what mm-hmm. carbon are we burning to bring them back? What carbon are we burning to process them? So, to send them to wherever they're supposed to go. Right. And then to ship them to all the stores and stuff that we, where we eat. So there's much more to that carbon than just removing that biomass or removing it. And then we're adding all this extra carbon that those animals can no longer help sequester or store or fix mm-hmm. or anything. Mm-hmm. Um. So it's a much larger problem than just removing the biomass. Um they also, and this was really important too, is that w- when you fish and you overfish, you tend to the populations start to decline, but they also start to decline in size. So this happened with salmon, right? Salmon used to yeah. be able to get huge salmon up here. and they've they've gone down by like more than half, I think, in the size that mm-hmm. they the max size that they've been able to get. Um, and so if you reduce the size, you're again reducing the amount that can be stored.
1: right. And this is actually a really great point where we said we weren't going to be all doom and gloom. But this is a really great way for you personally to make a difference is to try to buy things that were grown locally that had minimal transportation to get to you. Like that's a really, really great way if that's, you know, if you're able to do that in any way, that's a great way to
0: reduce at least some of that process. Right. And just the fact that we can change, we can help climate change by not trying to bioengineer something crazy to fix something, but just not keep destroying the environment, right? If we can not do that, we can not hurt it as much, that in itself will help. Because if we just let the ecosystem be as it's supposed to, it can help fix itself. Now we've gotten to the point where we probably need to do both. You know, we can't just say like, oh, we don't need to worry about it. We just need to fix the ecosystem. We still need to reduce how much we're releasing. But if we can put our energy into conserving the environment that we have and kind of helping try to restore it back to what it was, it can in itself help the, the extra carbon that's in the atmosphere and, and hopefully mitigate climate change some. Yeah. Um, so they also looked at, you know, that there's uh, migration changes and reproductive behavior and rain shifts that have happened because of climate change already. We've seen that in marine mammals. We see some warm species going up in cooler waters, some colder water species reducing. You have migrations that are longer or shorter. And again, all of that goes back to the carbon cycle. We already talked about what those behaviors do and how that how that works in the carbon cycle of moving carbon from one place to another. So climate change is affecting that, which will then affect climate change again.
1: Yeah, and also just in terms of the ocean acidification that you already mentioned as well, certain, certain species, like Cindy said, are extremely sensitive to even just the small amounts of ocean acidification that are happening currently. Exactly. So that's another thing. Like if you keep perpetuating the problem, that's just going to get worse and that's going to create a whole another layer of issue on top of this whole thing already.
0: Exactly. And then locally, you know, you, you have animals that don't go anywhere. Well, it's easy to conserve them and, and deal with that, but you have highly mobile species like gray whales that go from, you know, the tropics to the Arctic. How do you protect them all the way along that, where it goes across political boundaries, social boundaries, you know, different states different countries international borders it's very hard to protect them all the way through it and you have to protect them all the way through it because otherwise if you only protect them in one spot that doesn't help right right? i mean it helps but not enough (laughs) yeah um so we all have to work together yeah we have to work together as a as a a larger ecosystem perspective and a global perspective uh to be able to help these species and then help us uh, fight climate change Mm um so the um the last kind of point i wanted to bring out was that you know there's the the review for this was only 16 publications because that's all that's been actively documented of this is how much carbon this species will sequester or this poop does or whatever ones they looked at so 16 publications is not a lot at No, all no in this especially in this day and age so it just highlights how much more we need to to do and look at this um In the grand scheme of things um, paying more attention to carbon and relating it to the stuff we already know behaviors and uh, functional parts
1: and I think you made a really good point a moment ago where you were saying you know there's there's such a push in the climate change movement to take active steps to do things and it's like well and you know instead of creating something new as you said, we could be putting our energy into understanding what's already there and understanding the implications of that um, as, as a major way of of moving us forward potentially. So I think that was another really great thing that this paper highlighted. Um, and just the fact that there needs to be so much more work on this to to really fully understand it.
0: Exactly. So uh, to, to, to link the, the, those two t- ideas together, um, I'm going to read from the paper again, because they had some really good sentences that really kind of sum things up. So mm-hmm. disruption of marine invertebrate marine vertebrate populations affects the capacity of marine ecosystems to fix, store, and sequester carbon depending on behaviors and trophic levels affected. So they affect, you know, it's very complicated and they affect a lot of things. And so by leveraging naturally occurring carbon fixation, storage, and sequestration interactions for climate change mitigation and adaptation can be a strategy with lower risk and lower cost than many uh, geoengineering solutions. So as we said, if we can fix what nature has got going, <laughs> right. we can maybe help things along. Although we still need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions as well, right. Uh, like you
1: said, I think at this point it, it's a, it's a combination effort. But yeah, that would be
0: that would but be. But to focus on this a bit more. Yeah, like this, there's stuff that we can do that would be less costly and less and and, and just more feasible to do, mm-hmm. just by protecting them, protecting these species. Um, and one last thing is they said they you know this research could also help prioritize species that are likely to have a greater or keystone role so again you know if we find one that like this species really controls most of the carbon here we really need to protect that one although we need to protect all of them but this one in particular has a a larger effect on the on the ecosystem so finding those species could also be helpful as well
1: and i think what's really important about that is a lot of times in our current system species are not conserved until there's a depletion in numbers to the point where their numbers are threatened but is that really the way that we need to be doing it exactly. you know maybe there are species that need to be taken care of more concertedly because they have a huge impact on our
0: world exactly and you know and an ounce, ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure right is you know look at the vaquita right we're trying to save the vaquita it would have been much Less time-consuming and more feasible, and less money if we could just protect them from the first place and not have to try to fix the problem.
1: Right.
0: So looking at it like that as, as something to maintain before it gets to a big be a big problem um, is the kind of the shift I think we need in our thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wanted to read the last sentence of the paper, uh, which was was really uh, well put. The challenge is understanding this complexity well enough to inform effective policies and management actions especially considering that these functions are absent in current management strategies that aim to address climate change or secure sustainable development. So this stuff is important and it's not being looked at and it's not being talked about in any of the measures that we're thinking about doing.
1: Right. And like you said, it's such an, I mean, I say easy, but it's such a relatively less, less expensive, less drastic way to make a huge impact. Right. Just, it's just redirecting our focus.
0: Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just a, a, a last final thing is, you know, again, understanding behavior. And I, I really, that's what I really took from this uh, paper, too, being, uh, you know, as we are with photo ID and behavior, um, that kind of gets overlooked sometimes. But understanding their behavior is absolutely critical um, for understanding both the direct and indirect effects of this, of how they affect the carbon cycle and what they can do. Uh, if we help protect them to help us combat combat climate change yeah so it's important to learn not just about the animals but the behavior that they're doing and um they can help us fight climate change so whales whales can help us fight climate change pretty wild (laughs) (laughs) takeaway and even small tiny little teleost fish
1: as well right or a little krill or a plankton Mm
0: -hmm, exactly um
1: so just as a reminder, that was a paper by Martin et al. I'm not sure if we actually said the person Did name not. to begin Ms. with,
0: so sorry, Ms.
1: Ms. Martin. Um, Martin et al. in Cell Press, which is open access. So, mm-hmm.
0: And we'll have the link, that's Integral Functions of Marine Vertebrates in the Ocean Carbon Cycle and Climate Change Mitigation. Um, so hopefully we, uh, hopefully summarize that fairly well and talked about, you know, help you understand what this, what this means and why it's important and why the carbon cycle is important in the first place yeah and whales can help <laughs> so uh next time we'll be back with the marine mammal highlight um actually don't know which two are going to be up for um for yeah, i don't know yet yeah it tuned eye- yeah stay tuned keep an eye on instagram uh for to help us uh, pick which one uh which marine mammal we will highlight next and uh we will see you then bye bye this was brought to you by pacific mammal research a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Check out our website, www.pacmam.org, that's P-A-C-M-A-M, to learn more about us, our research, and the educational opportunities that we provide. Also, help us continue providing fun and educational content like this by donating today. Your help is how we can continue to do our work and share it with you. Thanks!